Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. Welcome, Michelle. I'm very happy to have you as my next conversation partner. It's not a surprising thing to say that we have known each other previously, and that's one of the reasons why I've invited this to this series, as I've always admired your commitment to research when we were meeting in the EMCC International Workgroups and, and all the activities. How may I introduce you to your audience? Because I know so many things about you, but I would love to hear how you would introduce yourself. Well, I define myself as a, a former engineer, convert to psychology, so I, have, I hold a diploma of uh, engineering far in the past, from a well-known uh, French school, became a doctor in clinical psychology years after that, so quite recently, in fact. It was in uh, 2007 that I got my doctorate, in fact, yeah. Whenever someone mentions 2000, my study years come to my mind and I still think that, okay, any article published after 2000 is pretty new, but then I just, you know, check the calendar and it's, oh damn, that has already been 23 years ago. No, I've published, I published a lot. I mean, 12 Mm -hmm. books. I mean, the most recent one is uh, this one. As as we are just recording the voice, we, we will just tell the... The title in English, if there is an English title for it. No, there is. I mean, the English version is not done yet. We have that in our plan. It's a collective book, so it will be less a burden to make the translation in English. This is in the plan. Sales are going well, so there is a chance that you will see an English version. Uh, It's an observation of the market from 10,000 feet, or meters, if you prefer, trying to understand how the tectonic plates influencing each other. Uh, And when I say tectonic plates, there is uh, coaching, which is currently exploding into pieces, and all these pieces need to have their own supervision. There are uh, regulators, there are uh, professional bodies, now a new player appears, which is uh, platforms. Platforms are finance, so there is also finance now in the game. Technology, research. So all these tectonic plates influencing each other. Uh, and the book is about that. Considering that, where do we go? That sounds very interesting. And I have I've never heard this expression of tectonic plates before, but it's a very... A very picturesque representation of what we are talking about. And what just catch my attention is that you said the coaching is exploding to big space. No, we and... said we exploding is a little bit dramatic, but yes. in fact, I love dramatic expressions. In fact, it's fragmenting, fragmenting, because mm-hmm. at the beginning there was and there is still individual coaching. Now we have team coaching, which is quite popular around the world. 
Uh, also, with David Clutterbuck, and, uh, and this is very developed in France, there is team of teams coaching. Now, internal coaches want to have their own techniques, their own uh, competence framework. Now, there is coaching with horses, use specific techniques. There is coaching of identity, which is more and more popular, coaching of this, coaching of that. So, so this is what we call fragmentation. And fragmentation means that all these little pieces will have their own supervision, their own articles in some kind of code of ethics. They also will have their own supervision and blah, blah, blah. So the, all this world of coaching is, uh, is getting more complicated or even more complex. This is what we call fragmentation of coaching. I use the word explosion because, in fact, it might accelerate. What's your opinion? Is this explosion, or as it is accelerating, and all these new areas and fields are emerging? So what's your opinion? Is this a useful or good process? I, I've heard, so I've been in a number of conversations, and some of my conversation partners say that some of these are just you know, marketing tricks and we all share the same foundations. So we have we have these coaches and those coaches and those that are all those top work. How do you see this process? Is this a good thing that serves the profession? Or is this over a certain boundary where it is not serving us anymore? Of course, you know I always look at things with a systemic mm -hmm. in fact it's that's what <laughs> it's what I call multi causal, I mean, multi-causes. So, for instance, team coaching, I think team coaching is a very reasonable move from individual coaching because the coachee is very, was very often talking about the team, the relationship with, with the team members. And so the invention of team coaching came naturally. It was not commercial trick. Now, some Fragments of coaching, probably they have a, a smell of commerce in that. For instance, uh, coaching with horses, it's in fact a new technique, mm -hmm. which has a justification. And the, the justification is that the, the horse is a very emotional animal. And if we use uh, correctly this emotion and intuition, we can have results which are far much better than when without a horse. So you see, it's other things like, for instance, uh, I mean, it appears that, for instance, executives and leaders have new needs, and we don't know how to treat these new needs with coaching, individual coaching as it is. Some people are thinking about a combination of coaching and mentoring, which they call, for instance, executive challenge or executive something. And ICF is talking about coaching conversations, things like that. So there is emerging needs on the market. There is a creativity of coaches, especially when there is money at the end of the... <laughs> Let's not be hypocritical. We are, this is a business. So, yeah, this is a business. So, this is normal. And there is also the emergence of new things, which are just 
the emergence, like uh, life emerge at some mm -hmm. point of time. And after all, it's good. You see like that. But for instance, coaching of team of teams, it's I think it's just the idea that we had we had individual team, and then why not team of teams? But now the construction of team of teams coaching is something quite difficult because it's much more complex. It's competing with uh, organizational development, etc., etc. There are, and the market is pushing for more focus on climate, more focus on poverty, more focus on, uh, I don't know, what, uh, lack of climate, water. Climate change, sustainability, these are other topics that I do here quite often. Yeah. There is some complexity in our market, and I think that the coaching industry, I mean, coaching, mentoring, and supervision industry is doing its best. I would say, to cope with the market request. And I see that as a very natural thing. And I, so honestly, I, I welcome all these innovations. Sometimes I have the question uh, as a research-focused person, whether these innovations really add value, whether they really bring something new and, and useful for the profession, or are they just the good old things Rev in a different rev or in, in a different packet check. And that, that's where my criticism, or I, I wouldn't say criticism, that's where my curiosity is coming from. Uh, well, um, I have no idea because we have no real tool to assess uh, the effect of coaching industry on common good. I mean, we have no measurement tool, no, no criteria to say that what we do is good or not. Ooh, I mean, scientific, scientific, to, uh, scientifically designed tools. I mean, not just, uh, yeah, of course, coaching is good, but we don't have uh, uh, anything to assess that. But that would be such an interesting thing to have, wouldn't it? To be able to prove that our profession contributes to the greater good of society. But as usual, I mean, uh, the effect of a tool or something there are positive effects and negative effects. Of course, I mean, uh, you don't know. Do you think, so are there any negative effects of coaching that you are aware of? This is just, I didn't plan to ask this question, but as you mentioned it, it sounds so interesting. As in all the previous conversations I had, we, we were really focusing on, on positives and on the development and whatever. And you were just mentioning potential negative effects. And I'm curious, are there any negative effects that you are aware of or you would warn us you know, to be aware of and to avoid? Again, I have a systemic view of, on everything. So when, for instance, I coach an executive and the request of the executive is to increase his, their performance or I mean, increase and make... Uh, their company more effective, more, more effectiveness, let's say, then of course a number of people will be fired because uh, less people needed to produce more. I mean, if the request of the, the executive is to help him or her to, to have a more competitive company, of course, a more competitive company means less people to have a bigger income. You know, in a systemic world, when you do something here, 
there is an effect there, or there, or there, and these effects might be negative. The effect on the client is positive. I think that's very important to be aware of. And what brought you to this systemic perspective? So where is it coming from? Is it your engineering background or is it coming, is it coming from, a, from a different place? No, it came from studies at university. I started my studies on coaching psychology, clinical psychology, a long time ago, because at that time, I, had, uh, I was an employee of a large company. I was studying uh, psychology in planes during my professional trips in hotels when I was away from my home and I had nothing else to do. So I started at the very beginning of uh, studies about psychology. And so it started, I think it was in uh, 1995, something like that. And this is where I discovered system theories. What is the addition of this systemic perspective to your practice? So why are you a fan, if I can use this word? Why are you a fan of systemic approaches? Well, in fact, in my approach, either coaching or supervision, I always consider the in the person, and especially intrapersonal aspects, the relationship and the system. And now beyond the system, I'm looking at the organizational aspects, which are coming from my background as a, as a director for organization some years ago, when I was an employee of uh, IBM. So now I consider four levels. It's like an onion, four layers when I am with a coachee or with a, a supervisor. How are you functioning? How are you relating? How do you consider your environment? How do you function in something which is called an organization? What is the added value that it gives? Does it give extra insights to your clients to be aware of these external things? Does it help you to give different or other interactions? So why would you recommend the systemic perspective for others who are not really into it. In clinical psychology, we have there is something which is called the the evil or the the source of the pain, mm -hmm. the origin of the pain. And what I've learned there is that in uh, psychopathology, is that the source of the pain is not always in you. It can be in the relationship in the system. I mean. Some family functioning makes that one of the family family members suffers, but in fact has some uh, physical effects, for instance, but is not caused by something inside him or her, but it's an effect of the functioning of the family. So it is exactly the same. For instance, if you take a scapegoating. Excuse me, but coaching, I didn't understand the word. Scapegoating. Uh -huh. Yeah, you see what it is. I mean, the group is considering one of the members as being the cause of everything. But this is a group functioning. It's not, I mean, the, the poor scapegoat is usually not responsible for it. doing his best. Yeah, it's like, you know, in the old 
Navy, they didn't like to have a woman with red hair on, on the boat. So, but I mean, they just say everything which is uh, working wrongly is due to the presence of this red hair woman. Full red heads. Yeah, so mm -hmm. he avoid the, how do you call that? The, not the team, but uh, the crew to reconsider its function. And in the so and what I'm hearing and what I'm getting from it is that it can help the the individual, so your client, to move out from the from searching for the inner fault, their own potential mistake if it is not there. And, and but it's my, for me to hear that is that I, as I've been mm -hmm. seeing a number of coaches, so I'm seeing a number of schools and approaches to coaching. I see a trend in you know in psychology getting into coaching and everyone so in quotation marks lots of the coaches and lots of all the helping professionals are looking for in their causes in people and we are lots of us are into raising self-awareness finding your own mistakes i see a trend of over psychologization if i can say that word in coaching and what you are saying from the systemic perspective perhaps helped the to change this trend or to add an extra perspective that it's not always the internal cause that needs needs to be addressed. So when I coach and coach, she says, it's not my fault. It's not the fault of my team. It's the fault of the general manager with that and that and that and that. I usually don't believe that. Yeah, sorry, go on, please. Yeah, because it's never my fault. Saying that we don't like to take responsibility for bad things. That I think that's in line with human nature. I'm saying yeah. provocative things here. No one likes to be blamed. No, but we were on why system theories are so important for you. I mean, that was your your question. So I was just trying to answer. Maybe it's a too long. <laughs> the answer is too long. No, I absolutely like it, and I don't think it's too long. What is what I liked in your last sentence, you said that you don't believe when your coach says that it is the fault of the general manager or the team or, or whoever else. And before that, we were talking just about or seemingly the opposite, that there can be causes of the pain outside of the coach. We can only work with the coach in the here and now because he's the person or she's the person that came to coaching. We cannot change the other people. We can't help them to change. We can just help the coachee themselves. So what is the line where you draw the responsibility between the coachee and the environment? First of all, when I say I don't believe the coachee, I don't mean he's a liar. But yeah, I told so. Maybe, maybe because there is uh, inconscient or automatic, depending the theory, uh, mechanism which uh, means that the coachee is doing or saying things uh, not consciously. Mm -hmm. I mean, I so that being said, my approach is uh, what I would call the, the kind of medical approach. Or, I mean, this is the, I try to cooperate with the coachee or the supervisee to identify different hypotheses all possible hypotheses, because I don't know how is the 
general manager is talking about. I, I don't know this person. I have no idea, but but I try to identify what could be the cause of things going wrong. What are the hypotheses? See, it's I work like a researcher in in physics. <laughs> Just try to identify the, the different possibilities and work on each of on, on them. That's that's the approach. Uh, I, I try to be as neutral as I can. Uh, no judgment, but mm -hmm. analysis. You know what? And I absolutely love this approach. And I think I I believe that I work in a similar perspective. As a a final provocative question, what I have. And I don't want you to think that I'm against the systemic approach because I think that's very, very valuable. And I've learned a lot about it. And, you know, part of those were from your inspiration is that isn't the systemic approach bringing in, couldn't the systemic approach give an idea for the coaching to think more externally and to not identify their own weaknesses or their own responsibility? So couldn't it be a boost to take responsibility away from the client? Let's take an example. The request of the coaches uh, help me to reduce my workload. I work too much. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So what is the objective? The objective is to leave my office earlier. Okay. Let's set an indicator. At what time do you leave currently? It's at uh, nine o'clock at night. And what do you want? I'd like to have dinner with my family, so I want to leave at seven o'clock maximum. So the, the coaching mission is all set. You know, uh, request, objectives, indicators. So then I can start to. In fact, in my head, there is a kind of, uh, you know, like in computers, when you have, uh, how do you call that? Uh, yeah. When you have different possibilities, I don't know. Uh -huh. Scenarios. Uh, scenarios. So I say, well, my hypothesis is that either you don't dare to say no to your boss, either you don't know how to push what is the responsibility of your peers to them, Either you are, you don't know, your work is not well organized, or you don't delegate enough. I have always some fancy hypothesis, like uh, in fact you don't want to go back home early because you are <laughs> there. Are, there are this dinner with family is not a good thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, I mean, I, I try to work with the coachee or even supervisee all possible hypotheses and then look at in what he says or she says what are the factual elements that I can use to either support one of the hypotheses or reject another hypothesis so the kind of work like that and I do hear that the responsibility stays with the with the coach in this case in that case but then we can look at the other layer of the onion, which is to see what in your environment is causing 
the overload. Could be, uh, I mean, says the, the, the processors of used in this company. Could be, I mean, vision analysis of, you know, I tell you, I mean, the different layers, the person, the relationship, the system, etc. So I take that quietly, one layer after the other. Oh, and it's it's absolutely clear. Why, so why I was asking this is that the whole idea of where do we put the responsibility is an interesting thing for me. I like the the whole concept of boundaries. And you just a few minutes ago, you said the coaching of team of teams is competing with organizational development. That was the moment when I had the idea that, okay, boundaries is an interesting thing in the profession. And now with systemic coaching, for me, boundaries are an interesting thing in how do I engage with a single client? Do I focus on just them or how big is the environment that I'm considering when I'm in a coaching process with them? That's where my thinking is about boundaries and responsibility. When I discuss that, of course, there are questions in the room, like, uh, well, it's very mental, it's not very coachy. How the emotion is used in that? And of course, I mean, I feel good detectors for feelings of the other person. I mean, I have some empathy. I have also some what's called, uh, uh, there is another process which is called uh, theory of thinking. Maybe you have heard about that. Theory of mind. This is the exam. Yes. Discuss that with my supervisor and, and use some tools to measure that. I have an excellent theory of mind. I have a moderate empathy. I have, a, I can detect my feeling and put a name of them. To dire, I use the emotional material in a rational way. I mean, this is something. <laughs> so, for instance, if I feel bored during the coaching, I know that some kind of feeling bored, this is a characteristic of Michel, is a sign that the other person is depressed. You see what I mean? I have uh, worked with my supervisor to identify some specific feelings which are giving me indication about the personality or the internal state of the other person. I love that approach. And I think that's extremely useful as it sharpens so, so when I feel being bored, I mean, it's something which is a, really a pain in the, in the neck for a practitioner. But in, instead, it's giving me, I mean, if I feel, if I'm bored, then I think, ah, well, it, it might be depressed. And then I am immediately excited. I feel curiosity and I try to work that possibility. I really like that. And, and what is really important for me to hear, well, this is my judgment, that, that in all the things you are saying, the whole researcher approach is coming back as you are. So for me, you are talking about signals, hypotheses, interpretations. What I like is that the, the whole research or researcher approach, how it, it can be so easily applied to the, to the idea of coaching. Or the right. idea of, of a supportive conversation. And how I would like to move on, although we could stay here and I'm, I'm interested in all these technologies, is that I know that you are really into supervision. 
and you have mentioned it a number of times that you are working with supervisors. And I'm curious, what brought you to supervision? So how come that supervision is such a strong leg or a strong arm of your professional practice? In fact, when I became a coach, I mean, due to my background, I mean, before being doctor in clinical psychology, uh, I was a master of clinical psychology. Um, even I had two masters. And so in the university, I have a reputation. When I became a coach, uh, I was called by university, which was creating a coaching class, or a coaching school. And I said, yes. In that coaching school, it was in 2004, they were in a need for supervisors for the trainees. And then I became supervisor of the trainees of that school. Before being a supervisor, I had no idea of what, what is supervision, in fact. Learning by doing that. <laughs> uh, learning by doing. But at that time, you know, in 2004, I mean, the knowledge about supervision in France was minimal. I mean, that, never mind. Of course, there was supervision of psychoanalysts, there was supervision in uh, transactional analysis, things like that, but it was not, I was not satisfied with that that I am also an international person. So I saw that in in UK, they had a lot of ideas about supervision and coaching. So I went there mm -hmm. and um, grabbed the ideas, built my own supervision process from, from what, the, what the Brits were doing. And in 2006, I don't know if you remember, all the professional bodies in UK, they had the... UK Roundtable, what was called UK. I mean, in fact, they try to define what is coach supervision. I was just at the beginning of my my coaching activities back those times. I, yeah, I think I remember that it may be just self-grandiosity. Yeah, it's, it's, it's old, old ages. So, but it was in 2006. So. ICF UK and EMCC UK and uh, AOCS and all these they went in the same room to discuss that and what they created was the first supervision competence framework. It was created by a community. As a matter of fact, EMCC adopted it. If you talk to Liz Lewis, she's very she was part of that meeting and she's mm -hmm. uh, it was her pushing that competency framework to be used by EMCC. And so once there was a competency framework, immediately everything was clear, you know, I mean, because the competency framework was describing in detail what to do, what to, uh, etc. So supervision, and at that time it was also when the coaching competency framework was elaborated. In fact, I was part of all that game. I think it was 2007. I was a real supervisor, and, I mean, using some methodologies which have been discussed with the community of high-level professionals. Because, you know, I, I like to be secure in theory and practice. I felt secure because the theory was established and the practice, but I was alone. I mean, I was alone in, in my country. Mm -hmm. And then it was in 2011, Oxford Brooks 
university organized the first international conference of supervisors, I became a member of a tribe. You found, you found your people. That's what I mean. Yeah, I found my people. And I was, and it was a strange, I mean, it, you know, Oxford Brooks at that time was not in the current location, which is very nice. It was really the end of the world, you know. You know, see, it was very difficult to reach the place. I had to take a plane and then a train and then a bus and then, <laughs> and then on the campus I had to walk and I was lost. I mean, uh, Ooh, an adventurous meeting, I would say. <laughs> and when I discovered the place, I mean, there was, at that time, and there were about uh, 80 people, no, 70 people in the room. And mm. we did the round table. I was counting 60 people. There was 40 were holding a doctorate. Uh, several were professors at university. I mean, it was a nice place, a nice place to be. I mean, I discovered a tribe of supervisors. All of them were high level, or probably are still high level. And I felt good in that community. And so it was well, a start. When you said it was a bit heart-wrenching for me to hear, then you said that you were alone in your country. And, and what I know of you and what I really admire in you is that you really drove development of supervision in France and not just in France, but internationally. That's an, an activity that I really admire in, in your professional career. And what I'm interested in is that you said you felt safe when theory was established and then practice could just go on. And I'm interested in your activities around the research of supervision, because I know that you are doing a number of things to develop the field of supervision. So can you tell us a few things about your research or development activities around the topic of supervision? So what's going on around you? What is the what are the fields that you see to be interesting in the topic or around the topics of supervision? I'm just curious about your insights here. Well, in, in fact, I mean, there is something which is that my business partner, Florence Lamy, is the extremely clever person, very creative. You see, uh, I'm rational, but she's a poet. So she's extremely creative, has a lot of ideas. We, in fact, created tools and also engage in some research about supervision. I mean, very, very quickly, we start to engage in research on supervision. Most of papers and chapters and also conferences were in fact co-designed mm -hmm. with Lawrence, which by the way, got the uh, EMCC Supervision Award in 2017. <laughs> She was the mm. first one to have it. And I got it only in 2019. So you see, she was, uh, I mean, the community of supervisors uh, was considering at that time that she was really the head of all that. I mean, I'm just the shadow of, of Florence. No, when I say I was alone, I was not alone. I mean, we were two and we were trying to build. Uh, at that time, it was on, in 2010, we co-designed the training that we are still running, supervision training, 
So it's a cooperation. In fact, you have to think that in terms of a strong cooperation rather than just Michel. I think Michel, she is extremely creative, but Michel better in doing buzz and, <laughs> and advertise. Every good development needs teams. So we need both the creative, we need the masterminds, we need the people who can put the, these things into practice. I like to consider myself more as a creative person, not really as an executioner. So my executioner may not be the good word here. So the person who who does the work in making, in bringing ideas to life. So that's not always me. And what was there? So restarting the question. Do you have a favorite book chapter or paper that was that is really close to your heart that you you have written? I'm just curious what are the favorite pieces of research or outcomes or findings that you are proud of or that you like to remember of? I think that one was about, we published a paper, title is Who is the Supervisor? What we did at the time was to try to assess the, it was conducted as a research. We Florence had an idea that a supervisor has more qualities by becoming a supervisor than the coach. We did a study starting from that hypothesis. As we say, well, if this is true, it should, it should appear in an analysis of ego defenses. So we selected a tool to measure ego defenses. We selected a population of coaches, a population of supervisors. We checked that the population were okay, you know, with the famous, I don't remember the name of the test, which says that they represent a Gaussian population. And we measured the ego defense tool that we used. I don't remember which one. In, uh, was differentiating positive defenses the negative defenses. And the outcome was, in fact, it was not, the hypothesis was not true. <laughs> positive defenses were almost the same between coaches and supervisors. It was that supervisors have less negative defenses. Can you give us an example on what a negative defense is? So just we can have a more specific grasp of the topic. Well, projection, uh, omnipotent, uh, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the belief of omnipotence. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Why I'm interested to hear this. I'm a psychologist by background. I think the being aware of our own differences, how we are filtering the information around us, or how we are maintaining our own personality or own integrity. I think that's mm -hmm. one of our core functions, a very important thing in our relationships. And when we are working with relationships, that's something you cannot be unaware of. Interestingly, I, I don't hear this topic to be dealt with frequently, for example, in coach trainings, self-defenses. Perhaps the reason is that it's pretty on the boundaries of psychology and coaching, somewhere in coaching psychology. But I think it would be a an important thing to raise more self-awareness about them. Thank you for sharing this 
l'historien. Ah, qui est dit, the paper was published by the MCC, you remember, mm -hmm. the, the big blue, the minutes of the symposiums. Well, I can send you the paper. I mean, it was, uh, it had a big success. I presented, we presented it in, uh, in Ashridge, where uh, people were stunned. I mean, <laughs> What do you think? Can we share that article publicly with others? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's published and so uh, belongs to the world, in fact. In the good old days, Irina was very tough with all that. Remember, <laughs> <laughs> but now I mean uh, nobody re reminds that there were such things. I mean Alison Mitchell was the new uh, executive for research. How do you see the next steps in researching and in developing supervision? So how how do you see this field? What is what should be coming next? Well, what I have seen during the past. I would say four years, mm -hmm. because I mean, in, in, now I'm doing mostly supervision, so my interest is in now in supervision. There is a new something new on the market, which is that Eve Turner created in at the beginning of 2016 created the first network of supervisors. Mm -hmm. In fact, and this was a great idea, and thanks. Now in this community. One of the first discussions that we have, there is not a lot of research and supervision. You know, there are uh, monthly webinars, blah, blah. One of the objectives was to share research, but there was almost nothing. Eve had the idea to, because now the, the, the population of the network is about 300 supervisors, that who is interested in research? And uh, who wants to try to manage that? 50, about 50 supervisors raised their hand. And I was uh, in charge of trying to organize that population. So what we've done was to, I mean, when I say we, because I was in pair with another person from the university. I don't remember the name, I'm sorry. Uh, and so the first thing we've seen that The 50 people were showing extremely good will, but were, were really beginners in research. They were anxious to do something. We have organized them into clusters around some questions. So there was a group working on group supervision. There was a group on supervision of, on supervision. And there was a group on impact of supervision, of supervision. So I still belong to the group uh, on supervision of supervision who is dying. And I followed very closely the group on impact of supervision, which is really the subject to be investig investigated in re supervision and research and supervision. Excuse me. The question in impact of supervision is that We have some ideas about the impact of supervision on the supervisee, but we have no idea of the impact of supervision on the coachee and the organization. How does this actually you know, 
of no. interventions go through the system. Yeah, exactly. And in 2016, Joel Digirolamo, who is person in uh, doing research in ICF, a well-known one, you know, you know mm -hmm. that name? I had a, a similar conversation with him. Yeah, he published a quite well-known study on uh, research and supervision. And the last sentence in the conclusion was that uh, there is no proof of the positive impact on su of supervision on, per on the Kochi and, and their organization. And therefore, we ICF shouldn't go away or, or anybody else shouldn't invest too much in supervision. I, mean, I don't remember the sentence, it was something like that. So with a number of supervisors, we decided to try to, to work on that. But in fact, it's very difficult to find a valid methodology for mm -hmm. that question. Yeah, because then, as I get it, there are too many layers that we would need to monitor, or we would need to assess. Exactly. The, the effects we... are so complicated, or could be so complicated. That's exactly that. So we are still in front of problem, which is to assess the impact of supervision on the Kochi, and not only the Kochi, but on the Kochi's organization. I have, I mean, of course, there was a lot of work. I mean, in fact, there is some work on that. And what we have identified is that when the, the system, uh, back to systemic, mm -hmm. when the system is, I mean, the organization is in an unstable state, then maybe supervision could have a big impact. It's the story of uh, the butterfly uh, in, I don't know where, is triggering a story. It's called the butterfly effect. So, so we have seen that in some cases, and there is a butterfly effect when the organization is uh, unstable. It would be just the whole expression of an unstable organization, I think that is that itself would be worthy of a conversation when and how would you assess or would say that an organization is unstable because even inside that there could be so many variables or so many stuff. Well, it's very simple. It, it's unstable when it's about to have a sudden uh, big change which is quite difficult to assess. Mm -hmm. But um, so I have some some uh, situations where I saw that, for instance, I had a situation where I was supervising a coach who was coaching a member of the executive committee of a big company, a new member of uh, the executive committee. And they were the coach and these uh, executives, they were discussing the fact that in this company, silos were maximum. I mean, there was absolutely no communication between the business units. And the coach was quite, uh, I mean, had difficulties with that coaching. 
So what I discussed with the coach was, I mean, it was an idea which came in the conversation is uh, why don't the, the executive of business unit A invite the executive of business unit two to be part of his own executive meeting. No, because there was an executive meeting at the top and each one of the business unit, that's because it was a, a big company, 200,000 people. So we had that discussion in the supervision. The coach had the discussion with the coachee and the idea was applied in the company. And within six months, the complete management system of this company changed because it had tremendous effects. You can imagine that. And so that's a, a good example of a sudden change happening due to a, let's call it small intervention. Because um, in that company, doing that, they realized that there was absolutely no communication. <laughs> the, especially the CFO, who was invited to the executive committee of operations. Mm -hmm. uh, the CFO, which was a, a guy in the, in the company since, for, for a guy in the company for 25 years. He discovered that he had absolutely no idea of the problem of the, <laughs> of the operations. Rather later than never, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and so the CFO found the idea was super, and then it, it generalized. I mean, the invitation of executive, mutual exec invitations were established. And, and so this is an example of the butterfly effect, and which could be seen as really a butterfly effect, because I don't know if this idea... It was a small intervention that created big yeah. change. Yeah. And I think that that's really a good example. Yeah. And you, we came here by the effect of of uh, supervision on the on the coaches, and what you mentioned is that there could be a significant or an observable effect when the organization is an unstable position. So when mm -hmm. it is facing such a butterfly effect, so they are just developing in a short term. This is where where we were. What I would be still interested in around this is that how, what are the potential methods that you are using or you are considering to uh, to examine this supervision coachy effect so when we when there are a number of layers in the intervention that we've tried from a research perspective we've tried to create methodologies especially especially i mean damian goldvarg is interested in that and but I mean, all that needs some work, and the problem is uh, to find people who have time to work. So we are facing a resource problem here. Yeah, there is, there is immediately a resource problem. We are in front of the wall of resources, which well, we cannot, and we are stopped because there is not enough motivation. And let's assume that this for that all conversation is getting out to the people, to the public, and lots of people will listen to it. 
Hello, dear listeners. So how could the community get into this? Could we somehow help in solving this issue? Well, sometimes I mention this issue when I write books or papers or when I'm stand up in front of uh, the community in, in conferences or webinars, but it doesn't click. I know that there are lots of practitioners out there who have an interest in research, who would like to base their interventions and their practice on, on research things, on proven materials. But what I'm hearing from some of them is that they don't know how to engage with research, how to be involved in research yeah, projects. That's what I call uh, beginners in research. And my question is, what's your suggestion for those beginners in research, for these enthusiastic and energetic practitioners well, who would like to be Trying to find a group of, uh, of uh, doctorate-level supervisors. And, and by the way, there, is, there are not a lot of supervisors who are at doctorate level uh, who are uh, interested in that question. That's the issue is that within the population, the worldwide population of supervisors, which is probably around 500 to 1,000, we don't have enough people holding a doctorate. And now some hold the doctorate, they are interested in other topics. They, oh, they already have their, their own, their own bone with, with meat on <laughs> So what you are saying is that the research field around supervision, it is fragmented as well, because there are few people who would be able to do a proper research, but there are lots of other topics out there. I mean, oh, personal yeah. bones the, with meat on it. There is the, a lot of topics, but which we don't... Oh, these other topics don't have the same strategic implications, but I think they are more short-term. But, I mean, uh, the number of topics is huge. I mean, uh, I mean, we don't know a lot about supervision of coaches, in fact. And final question. I frequently say final question, and then I keep asking other ones. Okay. Is it, That's if... a pattern. <laughs> <laughs> That's my bad habit. As an additional question, if you would if you would like to recommend a book or a reading for people who are interested on in in what we already know about supervision or what we already know about the working of supervision, then what would be your recommendation? The book published by um, American Coach Supervision Network. It was published last year, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. late last year. So this is. Uh, and there are there is also books a book published by ANSI years ago, which is not very in depth in my opinion. So you can cut that also. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I mean uh, there was a lot of research on uh, supervision of psychotherapy. Thus, there is a mountain of work, but they are not interested in the effects beyond the supervising. So it's strange, but, uh, you know, <laughs> they have worked a lot on the 
supervisor, supervisor, relationship, blablabla, blablabla, bla, but, but it's like there is a, a kind of boundaries that, that don't, they have not crossed very often. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we, don't, we don't find a lot of help from the reservoir of research done in psychotherapy, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And let me close with, with a more personal question. Uh, that were there any outcomes or, yeah, let's just call them outcomes. So were there any outcomes in the research of supervision that have surprised you? that you have said that, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that, or how interesting, let's go even further. So were there any surprising findings when you were engaged, when as you are engaged with the research of supervision? No, not a lot. I have difficulties <laughs> to find one. Some papers on supervision of supervision published in Germany or... Uh, I mean, in the East, were quite interesting. But I can't remember the titles. I mean, a, a lot of work was done on supervision of supervision by uh, German-speaking countries in years 2009, 2000, 2007, 2009. And there is a guy called, uh, I mean, there is a guy who assembled all that into one paper and about total of uh, 120 papers and, and mm -hmm. it was an interesting I like that kind of paper because you can find all you need <laughs> there is a single goal go for its publication and so, will, so we will try to locate that edit next so I can send you the paper I got that somewhere in my mess but now I think that the the research on supervision I've not seen things very exciting, I tell you. Um, you know researchers look at some tiny piece of knowledge. <laughs> you know when when you said that you when you just said this, I immediately thought about the engineering work or, or the work of a mechanic that research and the related development is sometimes is the nitty-gritty work. So when you find a single screw that is not working and you are just dealing with that or you are just making a tiny adjustment here or there, and although the big machine keeps on going, you need to find the small pieces that can make it work in an even better fashion. So here you is know, some... But you have questions and questions about is there... Is there a magic way to do what what we do with Florence? And uh, and by the way, everything I say about Florence and what I'm going to say about what we do must be kept. I think it's quite important to let what is what means we are working as a team with Florence in terms of research. Mm -hmm. so it's important. So what I do, what I try my modest contribution to the whole thing. And this is together with my business partner, Florence Lamy, is that we, in, in our supervision training, we are asking the trainees to do a little bit of research. Every cohort has a subject. 
and they can take as a, as a theme and they can take the, the subject they are going to investigate from that. And we have, we have created, we have established ourselves as publishers, real publishers, and we publish the work of our trainees. So this is the first one of the books. The court was working on ethics. The question was that now find a piece of ethics which is still unexplored, and mm -hmm. we are going to publish it. This is done. So the idea is to, to push them in the direction of research, gives them uh, so you're, you're making research a, a part of the training program. Exactly. And I think that's a, an important idea. You know, for the long term of the of our profession, I I believe that we need researcher practitioners who at least can have this perspective of working with hypotheses with their clients. And hopefully they can contribute to our to the whole profession by considering hypotheses about their work, either in mm -hmm. supervision or either in a, let's call it in a research setting, when they are collecting or considering data or observations. And I think that's an, an, an important thing. I yeah. had uh, my previous conversation with Bob Garvey, and he said that there is no profession without research. So I firmly agree with him. And I would like to Thank you for joining me in this conversation today. I And I wish we can continue this because I know that your contribution for the research and thus the development of the supervision profession is very strong. And I would be honored to hear more about all the work you are doing. So thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for this opportunity. And have a nice day. <laughs> and good research work. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast, where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zoltanchigash.com, where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.